Hello, and welcome to the Old Farm Bus Podcast. This is the Back of the Bus Session. Hello and welcome to the Old Farm Bus Back of the Bus Sessions podcast. Today I'm buzzing because I've got my mate back on the bus with me. I've been and picked him up from the train station. We're going to go and teach the youth of Ripley some poetry, but before then, we've got a podcast with Mr. G. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) I do it every time, mate, and some people go with a cheer, some people just don't. I heard the cheer. (laughs) I really did. I heard it it in my soul. I heard it in my soul, like... Like the the millions, like the rock, the millions and millions of people cheering. Mate, well, don't worry, because I get a foley in and I make sure confetti is put up and balloons and it looks great anyway. Wow. So you're post-production, re- smash you're it. You're really expanding it, aren't you? <laughs> you're really, really expanding it. Some would say it looks a little bit uh, trite, but not me. Trite is good. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, cr- the, the the crass, the more crass something is, the more bait something is. I just think there's there's a beauty in it. Thank you. There's man. a beauty in things being just over the top for the and sake of And it's very of my nature, top. as you can tell. That's what I'm saying. Like if something's be naturally yourself. you, if something is naturally you, then just be that. Thank you, man. Yeah. You've given me permission now. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't even request permission. Thank or you. Even yeah. Need permission. Do it. Exactly. Well, who was that guy that just started screaming? Do it. He had like a breakdown. He had um, green screen behind him. Uh, Shia LaBeouf. Okay. Have you seen the video? No. It's really good. And he's just, he really means it. He's giving some self-development. But he just keeps coming on. He's like, do it. Yeah. I think and then I moves on a bit. I, he's like, I know him from doing just... this going. <laughs> that's, that's... What did he do then? What happened? Just just Google him clapping in a, in a theatre and you'll just see him. Oh, no. Yeah. He had a lot of strange times in his past, didn't he? But a, a lot of kids that grew up as celebrities did. I wonder what sort of scars that left on them, being a celebrity kid. You can't go down a street and everyone wants to be around you. Well, I think it's a difficult process because I do know a few people that were stars when they were kids and then sometimes making that transition into adulthood Mm. whereby you start to lose your cuteness the thing that people loved about you when you were on this tv show or you were in this movie then it is no more you start to enter puberty and then features start changing voice starts changing and so because you're technically becoming a different person Mm. but you still have the memories of that fame but yet people react to you in a totally different way. I can probably test to that where I was always, I was bullied quite heavily as a kid. So yeah. that was one thing. But the one thing that people would give me props on was my cute side. Okay. So I always got told, oh, you don't really want to be told that as a bloke, do you? Cute. <laughs> but that was one thing as a, a kid. I was quite a chubby, fat, cute kid. Yeah. And when I was separating from that cutesy self, that was quite difficult to to transition from oh wow so that's See, I, really I never had cute i never had cute going for me i, I always had a very serious look ah. like people always thought i was older than what i was like so i never like even though i was kind of short i never had problems getting into nightclubs and anything like that because i just had this look like and people oh shit let's let this guy in. <laughs> so would it be re- uh, resting bitch face they call it yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't resting it was yeah. just permanent <laughs> what do you think that from were you quite curious and always thinking and in place of mind or I th- yeah you know what it is it's when you know when you're growing up you don't um you're learning about your expressions and you're learning about your emotions and so um 
I think that when I'm concentrating or I'm listening, I would probably be really like that. I'm really taking it in. <laughs> and I realised, obviously now, I've learned to listen. Like, I can listen to you like this. Yeah. Right? But really, inside, I'm like, I've got to listen to everything he's saying. Right? <laughs> take but, it in, take when, it yeah, in. Yeah, but when I was younger, I don't think I had control over my face like that. Mm. So it, it is resting bitch face because everything is going into concentrating. So I'd actually scare teachers. Yeah. But I was really listening to what they were saying, but they thought I hated them. Oh, mate, that's yeah. interesting. Intense stare, very intense stare. And then I suppose they conducted themselves around you in a certain way and tried to shape themselves in that intensity. And actually, you were just really enjoying what they were doing. But they were had a, a hesitancy and a feeling of, oh, I'm irritating this person. You, so you're, you're viewing me as an adult. I mean, you've got to imagine me as being like a little three-year-old kid. They're, yeah. they're, they're, <laughs> nobody is skipping over the, <laughs> and worried about the stare of a three-year-old kid. I would be. I'd be yeah. I, I, oh, no, mate. I want you to like me. That's yeah. my life story, that is. Like, like Damien Omen or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. It's the devil's child. <laughs> so... Since you've uh, last been on, mate, I saw of recent you were at the Nottingham Notting Hill Festival, is it? Yeah, Notting Hill Carnival. Yeah. Carnival. Did you perform there? No, no, no. I've I've been going to Notting Hill Carnival for like the last forty years. Really? Yeah. It, it's like a standard. Um, millions of people. Millions of people. Millions. Yeah. I've never been to anything like it. So can you paint me a bit of a picture of it? Okay. Right. So, in in the nineteen fifties. I think it was 1958, there were race riots in the Notting Hill area between the the black Caribbean community and the, they call them white teddy boys at the time. Teddy boys? Yeah. Like rock and roll guys, they used to wear like long jackets and they used to wear winkle picker shoes and they used to have their hair kind of looking like Elvis type of stuff. I know right? exactly what you mean, yeah. yeah. And... um. And so in order to bring about a sense of like peace and harmony and togetherness, there was a, a woman called Claudia Jones and she set up a sort of like a gathering. Originally, it wasn't in Notting Hill. It was in, a, I think, King's Cross Hall. But then they then moved it to become a procession because she was Trinidadian. There was a lot of Trinidadians in that area. And so they are used to having a carnival festival in Trinidad so they just sort of like took the carnival festival from Trinidad and then placed it into the streets of Notting Hill whereby you would have parades you would have bands you would have music and so it was kind of like trying to bring people together so it only started off as not being that many streets and not me being that many people but then as time progressed more and more and more and more and more people then started coming and it became like a yearly fixture a yearly fixture and um as i said i've been going since i was a little kid and it's probably the most consistent thing in my life really yeah like you look like you were buzzing mate oh man <laughs> in your element <laughs> it'd been off for it'd she's been having off, a very good day <laughs> trust me it, it'd been off for, for three years due to covid and um, so this time coming back, it was the, it was like, wow. And you meet old friends, you meet people you ain't seen in years and years and years. And um, I've got some friends and, you know, we, we meet up every year. And it's just, yeah, it's a great time. And I had a red suit. I had a full oh, red suit. I can picture it in a red suit. It was the brightest suit. Kanye West ever. style. Trust me. It was Oof. the bright, it would stop traffic. It was the brightest suit ever. And, Are um, most people as colourful as possible? Because I'm... 
linking it to that Rio Janeiro festival, the one in Brazil where it's, it's colour. It's the same type of thinking. I mean, what what carnival I suppose represents is that it represents a sense of freedom, wow. a sense of like reimagining yourself to be a larger than life version of yourself. So everyone is extravagant and everyone is hyped up and it's it's a celebration over here it's a celebration of summer, right? Mm. Um whereas I guess in the in Trinidad I think it occurs in February, I think it occurs before Lent or something like that. So there is that kind of connotation to it. But over here it's just a a, a true true celebration and you're just you're hearing music from like all over the world and people from all over the world are just you know waving their flags and just everybody Unity. just yeah but it's crazy i mean yeah. like there there's another element to it whereby it can get a bit sketchy at well, times it, it was built on something that was sketchy uh, and friction where you've got you say the teddy boys and this sort of animosity towards one another yeah so did it take a while to build into something that had unity with it um how old did you say it was as well it's been going on since i think maybe the 50s or the wow. 60s i don't even know okay yeah I, I should be more clued up on it but it is um yeah as i said the thing is is that the, the history of it like progressive governments have always been trying to shut it down they've always been you know it's been over policed it gets very, very negative press. Right? Sound progressive. Yeah, <laughs> and um, the way what I really do hate about it is the way in which there's a, there's always like an association with crime with the Notting Hill Carnival. So you'd have something like Glastonbury, right? Glastonbury, only I don't know, maybe a quarter of a million people go there. It's televised. It's presented in the greatest light ever. All of the dramas that occur at Glastonbury. You know what I mean? There's sexual assaults that occur yeah. in Glastonbury. There's violence that occurs in Glastonbury. There's drug dealing that occurs at Glastonbury. Anyone that's been to Glastonbury has seen all elements of criminality at Glastonbury, but that then gets like pushed underneath the um, the bush, as it were. Yeah. But with Notting Hill, you've got four times as many people. Do you know what I'm saying? But then if there is like a, a, a robbery here or a pushing over here or an altercation with the police here and... You know, someone got killed at this one. I mean, it's it's tragic, but I don't know how many people got killed in London that weekend anyway, right? Mm. But what I'm saying is that, like, these things, the, the negativity of it always gets pushed to the forefront, and you always get these voices saying, it needs to be shut down, or it needs to be moved, or it... And the people that call for it to be moved, it's like they're trying to negate the fact that there's a reason why it occurred in Notting Hill, mm. right? Because that was, like, the first major race riots that had occurred in the UK and so it's like trying to heal from that and the wow. fact that we're still trying to heal from you know such divisions means that there is a necessity for such a celebration or coming together of people so it's not it, it's not a festival in the same way that Glastonbury is or that Leeds is or that Reading is this thing started from what it represents exactly it does wow. represent something that, that's quite um an uncomfortable history. Potent and important, especially in these times. Yeah. Why is that that the press act in such a way? Well, you know, do you have a do you have a theory or extrapolate? There's there's, there's always been a fear of um, black people congregating and having a good time. 
Yeah. That's the bottom line. Why I yeah. order? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, there's always been a fear of it. You know? Yeah. You're talking to someone that's gone to a million nightclubs and come outside and seen the police out there, has gone to a million concerts and come outside and seen the police out there. And then, you know, you, you, you change you change the demographic of the gathering and you don't see that heavy handed police presence there. You just don't see it. So I know that like, okay, there's just something in the psyche of the country that has a fear of this. And also the commercialization of it isn't as strong as it is with other places. There is no entry fee. It is free for everybody to go to. So I guess the fact that they can't control it financially and they can't control it in terms of what is going on there means that there is this fear that oh my god it's going to take over or whatever but you know it's 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 i've been i've been seeing the the political change and reaction to it for you know 40 50 years mm. you know and you just realize okay every year it comes around there's going to be these voices that start emerging and that trying to talk about a way in which it can be controlled it would only be better if this happened it would only be better if that happened where realistically if they had their way they'd shut the whole thing down do you think that is ever a potential do you think it could end up becoming something that gets shut down oh i mean if... i remember times when i really thought it was going to get shut down i remember i mean there were don't get me wrong there's been, there's been some times where there's been some serious violence at the carnival right like where you just go whoa and it, um somewhat is do you think the reason behind that too is because it's got that air of philosophy around it of, oh, that's a, a dangerous place to go. So people within there can treat it in that way when it's actually not that way, but it's been made to look that way. No, I think you're overthinking it. I think I that, like overthinking. Yeah, I think that if, you, <laughs> me. if you're honest, whenever there are gatherings yeah, of young men, yeah. testosterone-filled men, yeah, you, you know nailed I mean? that. You're true there. Right. We, we have little festivals here and it always exactly. spills over. Yeah. So. Uh, and, and, you know, the arguments can be over something as minor as just like brushed the wrong way, looked the wrong way. What you're looking at. What you're looking at is what we were talking about before. Or a girl shuns their advancements and then they then feel that they have to then reassert their manhood into the situation. So the, the, the type of um, skirmishes that occur are you know, are the general skirmishes that would occur at, at a football match yeah. or uh, any any gathering where there's going to be a lot of young people there. Mate, you said something there as well when it's free to go and there's no uh, sort of, what do you call it, selection process on entry. Yeah. That's why I don't put myself to a label a lot of the time. People are, are you a feminist or whatever it is? I'm like, because there's no selection in entry, then... Anybody that goes into being a label like feminism, hmm. I think what feminist, I'm just picking a label here, but what that means is quite a simple thing. But then it gets convoluted because everybody can just enter it and then it, it loses what it is, if that makes sense, by too many people being involved in it. So I don't put myself to a label a lot of the time because I'm like, well, I don't know what that means anymore because his version and your version and their version are all so different to what it is so that's just when it's the masses and load of people involved things get convoluted a lot of the time don't they um yeah it's a strange analogy though but like i'm trying to get my head around it um uh, sorry if no I, 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 I get what yeah. i get what you're saying um but i think that when you're too, when you're talking of ideologies and gatherings of people i think that like um gatherings of people 
people just gathering to have a good time and people gathering around a specific ideology, there's there's a different like impetus that creates those gatherings. This is very much about people gathering to have a good time. Mm. So I don't know if you can actually place it within the same thing as some kind of like a a, a strong motivating ideology that everyone signs up to. I get yeah. This is you know there are some folks that are just there that just want to stand on the corner and just you know smoke a little spliff and chill. Yeah, yeah, there are I get, some yeah. folks that just want to jump up, jump up, jump up. Do you know what I mean? And there are some folks that are trying to take it all in culturally and just go, this is an expression of it. And there are some folks that just think, like, fucking, what are you doing? I ain't got nothing else to do with shit. Just maybe a car. It wasn't my best analogy. Yeah. I'll give you that. So, <laughs> but I'm just thinking that like when you have, um, when you have gatherings of people that, um, I, I've got this whole theory around like society, especially within the Western world, they they love to monetize everything, mm-hmm. right? And so you tend to get like, when they start shutting down youth clubs or when they start shutting down, say, projects like this, mm. it's like, where do young people hang out? If the only place they can hang out is, is in a shopping center where you have to have money mm. in order to enjoy yourself in a shopping center. Otherwise, you're sitting there watching people spend money mm. and you're sitting there watching people come out with bags and stuff that you can't afford. That then creates a the mindset. Divide. Exactly, where you start thinking, why has that person got something and I ain't got something, right? But then when you have, like, say, young people hanging out in the city center and they're doing nothing, then everybody's calling the police saying, oh, I don't like the look of those young guys. I don't like the look. Do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. there, there has to be a an understanding that you young people need to hang out in order to affirm their identity and break away from the constructs of home. And for good or for ill, it doesn't really matter but you need to have these safe spaces mm. where young people can just hang out yeah. where they don't have to spend money. Going to a nightclub, you have to spend money. Going into a shopping center, you have to spend money. Going to a restaurant, going to McDonald's, whatever, you have to spend money. And the minute you have to I spend never money... I thought of this, you know. That's just really interesting. Boy, the minute you have to spend money, that creates this divide of the haves and the have-nots. But yet the desire to hang out and desire to be with your own peer group and to... Um, you know, attractions start to emerge, philosophy start to emerge, like a hierarchy starts to emerge and a vibe starts to emerge. That is a natural thing that would occur anywhere. So you need to be able to allow for that to occur. But wow, our society loves to just create money from any time people get together. You've made me feel even fuller about what we're doing on here and that the sessions are all free and anybody can come whatever age race background demographic no it's a great thing because it's it's a very much it's very much a needed thing and i guess i grew up at a time when there were a lot of youth clubs and there were a lot of community centers and there were a lot of places where you can literally just go and just hang out and chat breeze if you want to chat breeze and play pool if you want to play pool play ping pong or play some music i i grew up in spaces like that you know Mm. lots of youth clubs and realistically the you know i'm not going to say oh it kept me out of trouble and whatever and blah, blah, blah. But half the time, you just want to hang out with your friends and that's it. Mm. Can you think of anything else that in them youth club environments that it did for you? Or were there any pivotal moments with inside them where you thought, oh, I found a a passion here or a pull or anything? Well, I always loved music. I always loved, like, as I said, uh, I've, I've, I've said to you before many times, I grew up on, mainly on, like, say, hip-hop and reggae. So I think there was an introduction to those types of musics at the youth club and um 
But we used to like play football. We used to play, go on roller skates. And we used to go to like little trips out to the countryside. We did that once. You, you ate know, that though, didn't you? Came to the farm. No, I didn't mind coming <laughs> to the farm and hanging out, right? And because um, obviously the people that run it were people, I guess, like yourselves or like myself that were very artistically minded. It was just thinking, okay, you guys can come here, but we'll just introduce you to this or we'll just introduce you to that. Um, they would have like little film screenings, you know, where we can just sit and watch like a film. And so whatever it is you wanted to do, mm. you could find a way in which you can entertain that. Now, did I always go there just to, oh, I'm going to analyze this film or I hope that we go to a museum? No, there's a lot of times where I just sort of just sat outside, just chilling with my friends, just, you know, cracking jokes about each other. Mm. But the fact is that it felt like a place where we could um be ourselves without this harsh rigidity of school mm. and without the rules of home but there were rules same way still i think that's really alleviated any pressure for me too and made it quite beautiful because sometimes when you see all the kids here and me being me i want them to have a good experience but you're contriving and forcing have a good experience on them because when you see certain kids are say drumming or in a room and they're picking up a skill you think that's the important bit and you overlook how important and integral it is just for them to talk a little bit of smack talk on top of the bus or be over that way and just be together and and just be in that environment where there's a togetherness but it doesn't have to be on being passionate and being yeah precise on things it's just being well i think that like when you're an artist that you you do tend to to want to create art from every moment yes <laughs> but you know it took might have taken you years to get to that kind of understanding or that kind of feeling probably from this chat on this bus here today so i, I yeah <laughs> genuinely that, whereas that... you know when you're a kid you're just trying to just get a sense of who you are that made me feel light when you said it i thought yeah. oh okay when i see them just about I don't need to be over there what do you want to do no, what do you want to do there's pressure on them because I, I do think I've built a great relationship with lots of them and the one thing then I take it a bit too personally if ever if they, they say oh, I'm bored oh, I'm bored I'm like oh, I'm really bloody trying here well I think they just don't know how to express themselves sometimes and maybe they don't even feel bored I don't know what that is. I, we're all right. <laughs> but they may just feel a bit lost in themselves or not sure what they're about or what they want. And I've t taken that as too much of an impactful thing and rather than let them just be and maybe be with them, like trying to force them around, do this thing. Yeah, but boredom is a part of life though, yeah. isn't it? And um, accepting that not everything is going to be at high intensity interest rate all the time yeah you can't live life like that there have to be moments of the mundane mm. right i used to have this phrase that was what's it um after ecstasy the laundry right? oh yeah yeah it's yeah. quite a buddhist philosophy yeah. isn't it and um that's in one of my poems that is yeah after ecstasy the laundry you know? I was linking that to a rave <laughs> and it's just that realization of this you know that no matter what amazing moment occurs where you think, oh, wow, I'm really in contact with these kids. I'm really getting through to them. There will be a point where they'll just turn and just go, okay, I've, I've, I've sussed you out now. I know your range. I know what it is you're trying to do. I've figured you out now. And I can only come to you for this, but I might want something else. Mm. 
and then not trying to overreach for them moments all the time and yeah. finding that acceptance. Yeah, because so then you become heirs of desperation. Yeah, yeah, that's... Never good. It's the same as um, before enlightenment, peel potatoes, after enlightenment, peel potatoes. Yeah. So just keep that consistency and going back to what you were doing. Yeah, because potatoes always need peeling. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> quote the other day from me, Dad, he, he had a friend when he used to live in... Northampton and their garden was always just pristine and beautiful and my granddad asked him how do, how'd you do that to your garden and he was expecting this esoteric beautiful answer about how he could do his garden and he just literally just said I get up I mow it I prune it oh pr- prim it prune pr- prune yeah prune it and then I mow it again I let it go and then I do it again and then I do it again and he just said that and it was like Oh, yeah, okay, I get you. I wanted this special answer, and there it was. Wax, wax on, wax off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing you mentioned uh, I did want to jump back into yeah. uh, about uh, the Notting Hill Festival. Yeah. Um, you said there's a fear often when black people are together having a good time. Yeah. Can we just talk more about that? Because I don't think we spoke about that in the last podcast, yeah. but... That there's two things. Growing up in London, um, in, is your family from the Windrush? You say? Yeah, I'd say my mum is in terms of like say coming from Guyana, yes. which is like Caribbean. My dad is from Uganda in East Africa. But in terms of like say Commonwealth people coming over in the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, then yeah, they fall within that era. I feel there's an interesting conversation that I don't have much knowledge about and I would like to learn a bit more about in this podcast there yeah. of what it was like for you growing up as a black person in London in these times because you were saying about coming out of clubs and then seeing police around and everything and obviously from afar I live on a farm I'm quite alienated um, but I've seen on social media on the news the BLM thing happen yeah. and it was all very interesting to me I'd like to maybe explore that in this podcast a little. Yeah, but cool, what, man. what was your experience like then? Well, the thing is, like, okay, I grew up in the 70s, right? So I grew up when, yeah, racism was thick. Very, very thick. Thick, right? okay. This is before political correctness. This is when white people would use the N-word quite liberally, even in school. Right? Really? S- teachers would use it. School? Yeah. You see, exactly. It's a different era. Wow. It's a completely different era. Right, which is good that it feels so alien to me that that's the case in that to like school, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So meaning oh, things yeah, definitely, right? <laughs> and um, because this is this is like maybe not that long after Enoch Powell gave his speech about the rivers of blood, and that um, you know that that I guess spurned the whole national front which then became the BA, BMP, BMP which then became the I just know that well because that was bred yeah. in these areas of Ilkeston. and um. You just, what it is, is that you've got, whenever there is a a period of economic instability, then all the people that are doing the, the, the low-skilled jobs or the unskilled jobs then just start turning on each other. So you get white working class turning on black working class, turning on Asian working class, turning on any work, you know what I'm saying, right? And so, and it's much more in your face, and so the London I grew up in wasn't multicultural. It was very, very tribal, 
right? It's very like, okay, it's where the white kids hang out, it's where the black kids hang out, it's where the Asian kids hang out, and there's not much interspersing. You 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 know each other in school, but the minute you leave school, that's it. Was it quite central London? Yeah, no, it's all over. I mean, there are just pockets of yeah. places all over London where you just realise, okay, it's safe to go to that area, but it's not safe to go to that area, right? Even the West End is like, you know, come on, man. He's like, you go to West End, it's, you know, you're running a risk. A, half the places ain't letting you in. And B, um, do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's an air of understanding. Yeah, there's just there. an understanding that, okay, <laughs> to quote Scarface, it's not for you. <laughs> yeah, totally it's get you. you I feel it's you. It's not for you, man. You so what, what what ages are you at at this point then? You... Um, I would just say just, I think my my understanding of it is just from probably the age of, I don't know, three, four onwards. Well, yeah. You know, because as I said, the, there wasn't this, um, like now there is this sort of like, I suppose, um, like, like, like racism was in fashion then. Yeah. So you had the black and white minstrel shows on TV. You got like Jim Davidson as a as a comedian on national TV. Bernard Manning's on national TV. All the things that you see as being archetypal racist, these things were on general TV. So it's not a case of where you just go, oh my god, that thing's so offensive or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, this is the way that, this is where it runs. That's the way it is. Mm. And you don't you don't imagine it being any other way. Mm. And it takes a lot of um. It takes a lot of, I suppose, unpacking to really, like, go, okay, then, this came from this, and that came from that. It's like, I think as I was trying to say to you before we started, is that, like, my understanding of, like, say, the the Windrush generation, in terms of people that are from countries that were colonised by Britain, is that... People who grew up as white and English have no understanding of what was done in the name of Britain. Mm. They don't know what was done in the name of the Union Jack. They have no understanding of any clue, right? They don't realize that that Britishness was an idea that was sold harder abroad than it was over here, right? It's hard to sell an idea of Britishness here because you've got to deal with an Irish identity, a Scottish identity, a Welsh identity, a Plymouth identity, a Manchester identity. You've got to deal with all these identities, you know what I mean? So the idea of something being British or even English is quite loose, right? But the idea of Britishness was sold so hard in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Asia, that people thought that they were British. So when they came over here, they thought, wow... I was told I was British. I was told that my father was British. I was told that my grandfather was British. My great-grandfather was British. For as long as the British have been in whatever country that they conquered, you were told that you're British. So when people came over here, they had this strong idea of being British, right? Because a lot of them came over here before their countries were independent. So when they came over here and they met people who didn't accept them as being British at all, mm. there was this huge sort of like a reevaluation of like, well... Been lied to. Exactly, you know what I mean? We, motherfucker, we fought in a war to free you guys, you know yeah. what I'm saying, right? Like, And now we, we ain't good enough to, to, to go into your bars or we ain't good enough to get your jobs or get promotions or anything like that. So that was a real wake-up call, I suppose, for, for that generation. Mm. Where did you begin to educate yourself on this? Because it's not 
in schools. It's not in the forefront. Well, I think that like um, like my mum studied social anthropology, you know, so she she had like a very strong understanding of like different inputs. Do you know what I mean? That the way in which the world is presented to you is not the way in which the world is. That everyone has got like a different story to tell. So I think that like I've always um I've always had that kind of like that mindset of just realizing that okay like there's a reason why you learn things and there's usually a political agenda why you learn things so you learn about 1066 to justify the the norman invasion and to um cement the 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 supreme upper classes of this country you then learn about henry the eighth and his wives because you then have to establish the reason why there is a church of england you know what i'm saying and then things get really blurry right you under you have an understanding of Queen Victoria, but you don't really delve into like the the, the essences of what then brought wealth into England. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And then suddenly we get to the First World War. Oh, thank God, we're the good guys again. And so you then start learning about the First World War, and you start learning about the Second World War. So there's a reason why you learn things. It's not that you're you're being taught history for history's sake. You're being taught history to promote certain agendas, and condition, and conditionings. And that way you start to get an idea of like, okay, you get taught one sense of Britishness or Englishness, right? And you assume that is the only story that there is. Mm. Whereas there are other people in other parts of the world who get sold another story of Britishness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then they assume that their their version is correct. And when the two versions meet each other, then sparks fly. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you were going to sort of repackage education and particularly history... How would you go about that? Because instead of this tale where we're just the good guy all the time, which when you spoke then about world wars, we really emphasised on that. And I can picture that now. Do you think we need to go further, further back and just look at the truths behind it and all the nuances around that? Well, I think that like... Okay, I'll give you an example of my ignorance, right? So I'm educated here. And I'm taught the things that I've just given you an example of. Now, I then go to Northern Ireland and I'm seeing a divide and a situation that I know nothing about. I don't know why this thing's going on. I don't know why there's a big Protestant and Catholic divide going on. I'm not taught about it in any schools or anything. No sociology lessons, nothing. Do you know what I mean? And I grew up when the IRA was bombing London. So bombs are going off in the city that I live in, right? And I don't know why, okay? Now, that's because of conditioning. So I remember, like, I went to um, Belfast and, you know, there was this, like, demonstration between the the Unionists and Republicans. And I remember going to one side and listening to their story and realising oh, wow, there was a point where Ireland was almost, you know, united. And um, and then I think it's, it's, it's 10 states broke away or something mm-hmm. like that. And then realizing that the idea of like wanting to be part of the union and people not wanting to be part of the union, all these types of things. And I still have a very, very limited understanding of it. But what I'm saying is that like my lack of knowledge is, there's a reason why yeah. I have a lack of knowledge, yeah. right? And so my ignorance is almost helping to perpetuate yes. a situation going on over there 
where I just think these guys are just all crazy, mm. right? And so when you start taking it to ideas of like say like say racial divisions, you might just think, oh, you know, why are these black people acting like this, or why are these Asian people acting like this, and whatever, because you feel that you're not culpable in any way, shape, or form. But then when you start realizing, okay. There is a history behind yes. these frictions, behind these divisions, behind the propaganda that's placed on both sides mm. to then push people one way, to push people another way. Unpacking that yeah. means that the so-called good guys and the so-called bad guys swap sides many times. Yes. You know what I mean? And that's where it, it, it doesn't make... comfortable terrain. It doesn't make a neat Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. That's very interesting. Okay. Because we want that those happy endings. Yeah. You know? We want the credits to go up and us to walk away feeling like, well, we solved racism. Well, we solved religious intolerance. Well, we solved homophobia. Well, we solved nationalism. <laughs> we, so- we want to walk away out of that cinema while the credits are going up and the music's playing to feel that it's been solved when realistically, it ain't that simple. Mm. And the only way to really solve it is to put the truth at the forefront of it all yeah and then you can really nitpick between all that and build a unity then by having the truth laid in front of you rather than this vision this hollywood vision that we've been blinkered to and then this actually all it breeds is confusion because people are going well what's up with them it's like well the history the, the real history of it you just don't know it yeah I understand. And then that causes the divide that we're talking about. Were there any figures or mentors in school when they were using, say, the the N-word and it was a very racist place that were trying to change within (laughs) that system? You've got a modern mind. No. Yeah. yeah, You've got to really understand. Like, I'd say 70s and 80s is different. It's a different time. Yeah. Because there was no... There was no need to apologize. Yeah. Like now when people talk about, oh, political correctness gone mad, oh, wokeism or whatever, it's because there's there's an element of accountability. But I'm talking about a time when there's no accountability. Mm. Where where you're looking on TV and you've got people justifying apartheid. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, politicians on TV just justifying apartheid. Literally just saying, yeah, well... This is their system, and who are we to talk about their system? And da, 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 da. and you just go, oh wow, this is that's how you think. I like that um, saying. History, if you break it down, is his story. Yeah, and that's just told by the people that want to create that propaganda and that perception for people. His story. Yeah, and also, like, we thrive on stories, mm. and so we tell ourselves stories to make ourselves feel good. Yeah, and so. Um, yeah, it's uh, what history is just one person's set of facts. Is this why you enjoyed the Notting Hill Festival so much? Because that was quite a momentous happening in that time where it was starting to try and bridge divides. Well, I think that I think that is the that is part of the beauty of it, where you do realize that, like, you know, if you put people together and just give them a chance to just chill then they will just start enjoying themselves, right? Mm. And um, and because I've seen it whereby it had such a, a strong significance for me where, oh, this is our thing. And then the fact that it is now like the biggest street festival in Europe, the fact that it 
commands more people turning up than probably any other thing that you could ever imagine. Notting Hill's going to be at the top of them, right? I'm going to go next year. No, seriously, I would advise everybody to go because it is an experience. You will see, you'll see a different side of England. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Outside this farm. Yeah, you'll see. <laughs> I don't know anything else. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you'll see a different side of England. You and yeah. you'll have to realize that this this is a part of English history. Mm. It's a part of English history in the same way that anything else is a part of English history, right? And and once you have to accept it for that because it's it occurs on English soil and now most of the people involved in it have all been born here, right? And the fact is is that it commands so much attention that it is a there are people that travel from all around the world just to come to the Notting Hill Carnival. Mm. You just have to accept that yeah. this, is, this is here to stay. And I, I apologize if I'm clunky around this topic because I'm really I'm trying to work out what I'm trying to figure out here. But I'm very fascinated in the mindset that was sculpted and shaped in a young child in London that was black and felt sort of that they didn't belong in such an area. And I was just wondering, with the family household, what philosophies and ideologies or, or what was given to you to make you feel like, no, we do belong here? Um, okay, I don't know, like... <laughs> okay, what I'm going to say, you might find a bit strange, right? Um, I don't think I ever had... I don't think I ever felt a sense of not belonging. Because to me... It I was what it was. It was what it was. Again, I'm really, I'm trying to place into your mindset from before your time. Right? Yeah, and I'm really trying to and get you're, into you're the trying shoes to get, of it. You're trying to say like, oh, you know, these folks feel like you don't. It's like to me, yeah, the Notting Hill Carnival and being told to go back to where you come from, yeah, are both English institutions. They they exist at the same time, right? You know, yeah, people loving what you do or accepting parts of your culture and people hating what you do and rejecting parts of your culture are both the same part of the experience of being here so so polarized yeah it's it's not it's just a case of like you 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 can you can walk down one street and meet a friend and you can walk down another street and meet an enemy mm. and that is just the day-to-day runnings of things and Neither one or the other is a representation, complete representation of where we are. So then in the timeline, where and why did it start becoming unacceptable, especially in education system, to be saying the N-word? And where was it brought about that we were trying to be more inclusive as a society? I think that that's more to do with, like, say, the, like maybe the generation before me, where, like, I grew up at the time of riots, Right. So the Brixton riots, I was a little kid in the second Brixton riots. I mean, I was out on the street, right? And I think that, like, that whole idea that, like, okay, we're not going to take it anymore. And if you carry on along this line of thinking, we'll burn your city down. Because when you have, when people are in a position where they've got nothing to lose, they've got nothing to lose. They've got everything to gain. So when you place people in a position whereby they feel so rejected and they feel so alienated from society, then all it just takes is one little trigger moment, right? Be it the the police shooting in, it was, it was Cherry Gross. It was, it was actually my, my friend's mum, mm. right? That they shot. And um, 
and that then triggers everything to just go, you know, to to explode. Now, once you, once the older generation did that and said, right, we're going to draw a line in the sand and say, right, you fuck with us, then boy, you don't know what's coming your way, right? Then that makes the little armchair racist just cower and become like, okay, we won't say it out loud, but amongst ourselves, uh. we'll just have these little ideas and we'll just, we'll just harumph and, and come election time, then we'll let them know how we feel, right? Mm. So, but, but what I'm saying is that like, as I've said to you- At least be- it pushed them back a bit. <laughs> as I've said to you before, this friction is a part of life. Yes. There is, there is no utopia. No. The, the utopia is only the utopia that you create for yourself. But the fact is that it will always be challenged and it will always be tested and it will always have to push back at certain moments. That's why you've got to sort of aim for better yeah. rather than the best. Yeah. But again, like there are some people that they will devote their whole lives to fighting such battles. I was never that person. I'm the type of person that's like, I want to go in the club and I want to go have a good time and I come out and I hope I don't get arrested by the police. And if I don't, then yeah, that's a good day out for me, right? But I'm not going to be outside the police station with the placards. I admire those people. I can't yeah. lie. I really do admire the, the ones that really, really fight that battle really, mm. really, really hard for any form of injustice, no matter where it, it's seen or where it manifests itself. I admire them a lot. I'm one of the people that just wants to just have a good time and chill. Mate, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the chill bus with yeah. you, man, really. But uh, as you say, I do totally respect people that want to change and aren't just doing virtue signaling, but they really mean it mm. and they want the best for humanity and for people around them. Yeah, I love those people. Did you ever see elements um, coming into your life where the police would treat you a certain way? Have you had that happen to you? Boy, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on those type of things. Um, oh, man. I think the, the worst one, the most embarrassing one that ever happened to me was that like, I had some relatives over from Guyana um, at my mum's house. And um, I... I um I was carrying some speakers to go to take to my place and so I'm there with all the family we're chilling uh, everything's cool da, 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 da. and then I'm saying okay yeah I'm going back to my place now right and I remember I walked out with the speakers and literally the police came outside and just had me up on the street you know marched me back to my oh, mum's place hell. you know what I mean and then stormed in, and the, the the gathering of people was was mixed. You know, it was white, black, as Asian, whatever, right? And then when they saw the white dude, they hope they, their whole perception changed. Oh, sorry, we didn't know you. Uh, 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 that type of shit. That actually I mean? did get me a bit right? emotional yeah. then. Yeah, just because I thought myself like in that position, carrying some speakers. Yeah, there would be nothing. But you see, it's not it's not them suspecting you, right? You see. My perception of racism is, might be very different to what you are used to, right? It's not them targeting you that annoys me, right? It's not them ill-treating you that annoys me. It's them switching up and acting all polite when they see a white face. That's what I found wow. annoying. I've always found that kind of stuff annoying. Thank you for your honesty there. Yeah. there. That's really fascinating. And yeah. um, and yeah, it's, it's those type of things. So that, So sometimes the thing that you might think is the most annoying thing that's just day-to-day standard police brutality. But it's the hypocrisy yes. behind it yes. where 
oh, you can act differently if you want to. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'd, I'd rather they just said, look, we saw him, we suspected him, we want, we want to take him down and book him to rights. Yeah. I'd rather you say that than, than your Be whole voice changes and, and your whole plan. Oh, oh, oh I, we didn't really know. And that kind of that's shit. That's patronizing. Where you just go, okay, so you do know better. You know mm. what I mean, right? Yeah. Completely. If you don't know better and you just think, okay, I can't stand this dude and I'm going to let him know I can't stand him, fine, right? But switching up, that's difficult. So, so something you mentioned there when the riots were happening and then the armchair racists were sort of pushed in and you felt they went quieter. They still felt it and had them discussions, but it just got quietened. Yeah. When the sort of movements came of recent with the BLM movements and everything... Do you feel that was just exposing what was under the carpet but still there? Yeah, because again, when I say to you that they went quiet, I grew up in a time of London when there was white flight. So a lot of white people moved out of London. The reason why London's multicultural is because white people moved out. You taught out. me so many things today. Right? Right? The, the teddy bear yeah. guy, the white, well, white you, flight. Whenever you, see, whenever you see people talk about an area, like let's say they, they talk about like a, a place up north, and there's loads and loads of Asians there, right? And they just go, oh, this used to be a nice area, and blah, blah, blah. And now it's all Asians. And it's like, well, actually, you guys moved out. Do you know what I mean? In order for someone to move in, someone's moved out. And there's a reason why you've moved out. Do you know what I mean? And question the reason why you moved out as opposed to people moving in. Because nothing, the property market doesn't exist with a, in a vacuum, right? So I think that, like, um, in terms of, like, say, what happened with the Black Lives Matter, I had to really, I, I, I remember keeping really quiet during that time, really, really quiet because I knew that it was a very sensitive time and I knew that my mentality might be provocative, right? And mm. I remember having a lot of white- That's a lot of maturity there though, to be able remember, to sit back in yeah, such no, a- Yeah, no, I remember having a lot of like white friends ringing me up and wanting to pour out their heart, you yeah. know what I mean? And I don't know, okay, Here's what I was thinking at the time. I was thinking, okay, so George Floyd has been killed by a policeman, right? And now the world is inflamed in this whole movement in terms of some people are defending, do you know what I mean? Where they're saying, oh, blue lives matter suddenly, right? And some people are disparaging against it. And then I'm just thinking, okay, what is it that's really triggering people? Because if it's the... If it's the death of a black man, that happens all the time, right? Mm. So it can't just be the death of a black man. If it's a policeman killing a black man, can that really be triggering people? Because that happens all the time. It's been happening all my whole life and it will happen, do you know what I mean, in the future. So what's triggering people is them having to watch it. Mm. So it's, it's the idea of this violent act invading their space. And it's invading their space during a time of lockdown where people are consumed by their screens. If it wasn't for lockdown and the same video had come out, I doubt you'd have the same response. So people are actually offended and outraged and emotionally pouring out all of this feeling because this act that has been occurring for like, let's say 500 years, right? Mm you know what I mean, of um, white officials killing a black man, mm. right? This act that's been occurring for centuries is now in your face at a time when 
you're feeling You've vulnerable. Nothing else to do. And there's nothing else to do. And you're wanting to see nice little videos of cats playing the piano or nice little that videos. That's quite of, nice. You know what I mean? Of, you know, share nice little <laughs> memes. So Baby. now, the, now, the, now the reality of a system is being placed in your vision. Mm. And that's the thing that people are, are triggered by because it can't be the death and, and it can't be police brutality. There's also this idea where you've got to have a say on things. You've got to have a hot take. People always feel the need to be right and have yeah. something to say. And that causes a lot of confusion because with social media, especially Twitter, I find, but to just have a voice when you realise you don't have to always have a voice. That was a big lesson and learning for me. Sit and, yeah. and think about things and digest things and listen. Listen's it's big. It's true because you, in, in the heat of the moment when people's passions are inflamed, and it's I, so easy to say the wrong thing. I, I did have to... That, I, that was probably my biggest progression as a person and maturity is I don't have to have a hot take on everything anymore. Yeah. So important. Just let people... Do what you did there. I really uh, learn in that moment. Sit back, take it in, and then down the line, maybe through more information, you'll have something to actually say. And I think it's also just to say to yourself, okay, like, how can I learn from this? Because I, I don't know is quite disempowering to some people. Yeah, what what, what very, do you think? But, but I don't know. Yeah, but isn't that, that's some, um, that was, is it Socrates's greatest form of intelligence, isn't it? Oh, the mate. fact that he admitted that he didn't know everything. Oh, I, I actually love you. Yeah. <laughs> I love talking to you, man. Yeah. Have, have you ever, because um, I know you teach poetry in schools and so on, yeah. but have you ever thought of going in and doing history? Because as I was listening to you talk then, I thought if you were in my school, Ripley would be a different place. And I really mean that. Yeah, but I think that you have to, um, um, I'm still unpacking stuff now because... I'm just of an age where history has got like a, it's got more meaning to me now than when I was a kid. Mm. Um, but I, I, I do it in terms of like this, there's certain poems I've got where I will describe a historical context to the poem mm. and I will do that. But I, I'm not the type of person again, like you're, you're trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to make me into something. That I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not, I ain't that guy, man. Do you know what I mean? You're like, inspiring now. I was, really... I ain't that guy. I, like, I, 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 I know me. I yeah. know me that I'll, I'll read one history book and go, Oh wow. I'll read two history books and go, Oh wow. And if I can't get the third one, I'm like, oh. Well, it's my second, yeah. no, I've, I've had three proper meetings with you, but it's my third experience. So I'm finding out who you are through these clunky questions. <laughs> well, again, I think that like, I think it's good that people can have clunky conversations. Yes. Right. And that's why I, m I remember I said to you before we started this, that the best conversation that you will have with someone is going to be, I know you don't like it, but mics off, cameras off, and then you can just literally clunk it out as yes. it were with a sense of that ignorance is forgivable. I love that. That, right. that that's another factor of everyone had to have something to say but also there was no room for ignorance in there it was you're wrong and yeah. this is why you're wrong and, and we are not going to forgive you for that and then there was witch hunts everywhere yeah, exactly. you see and, th and then there's a thing whereby you get you get you get countries that are then saying well that's an american problem ah. and we don't have that over here yeah. and da -da 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 -da. and you just and then obviously that then creates another dynamic and then you have marches in trafalgar square and then you have protecting the statues and da -da -da. and it 
it's an amazing time to live through, right? It if you think about it, the last couple of years, amazing, fascinating time to live through. Um, but then it's very easy for passions to then be ignited and then for reason to go out the window. Mm. And so, and that's why, like, when I look back, just relating it back to something like Carnival, sometimes you need something that doesn't have the strong political um, motivation behind it to allow people to come together. And from that coming together, then the clunky conversations Mm. and the more politically minded conversations can occur. But you need that space. Again, like how young people need a space where it isn't as contrived as um, being in a nightclub or being in a shopping centre is, right? They need that space where they can just come together and bump chests against each other kiss and make up arm wrestle with each other get vexed with each other <laughs> and then cry over you know um over similar football teams losing and yeah. whatever blah 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 you need us we're human beings and we have to go through human emotions together and many of the divisions that are placed upon us are, are as a result of propaganda pre-programming in some cases from hundreds of years ago and in the same way in which I said I can walk down the streets of Belfast and just realise, fuck, I don't understand what's going on here. Mm. And there's no point in me even saying, hey, man, we should all get together and da-da-da-da-da-da. No, nah, no, nah, you can't go there with that. You actually have to go there and just go, okay, then, I've been lied to, right? Mm. And I need to hear different sides of this story. And I'll hopefully I can attract people, do you know what I mean, who can give me information that I might need so that when I come here again... I don't make the same clunky mistakes. Mm. And in terms of your learning and knowledge towards your history and your ancestry, have you travelled much and been to find out a bit more of your roots? And yeah, yeah. I mean, um, like I've been to Guyana many times. I've been to Uganda loads of times. Um, like, like for me, I, <laughs> I like roots is a quite a funny thing because I guess that like um, the the that people have like a searching in terms of like, they want to sort of like, um, you know, that, that whole thing of like, you want to find out where you come from. You want to find out, you know, what is beyond slavery or what is beyond colonization and whatever. And, um, and so I've, I've read quite a lot of stuff about the different places. And, but you just realize that, wow, you know, the, the, History is written by the powerful. Yeah. Even history from a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three days, it's still written by the powerful. Do right? you have a conspiratorial thinking into why that becomes the case? Because is the it, powerful can sanction it. The powerful, powerful can and I like it, you know? the word conspiracy, like conspire. Mm. People conspire to create a reality for people. Like, I, I remember mm. being fascinated by Egypt, right? And I remember being like, um, you know, like Egypt was like a it was like a symbol of non-white excellence. Do you know what I mean, right? Whereby that in terms of like a civilization that um, that occurred thousands and thousands of years ago, it gave uh, credence to the idea that there was a technology in existence that was completely on the continent of Africa, right? I loved that idea. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, right? I went to go and see the pyramids 
and I looked at the pyramids and obviously everyone that tries to reimagine themselves, they try to imagine themselves as like a pharaoh, do you know what I'm saying? Or they imagine themselves as, you know, Cleopatra or they imagine themselves as, you know, Ramses II, right? You know, or Arknitton. And I remember looking at them pyramids and just thinking, some motherfucker had to move those bricks. And some motherfucker told that motherfucker, move those fucking bricks. Hmm. and we don't hear the story of the guy that had to move the bricks we only hear the story of the guy that told the dude move those bricks do you mm, know what I mean oh, yeah. and I remember just looking at the great pyramid of Giza and just going boy that's not easy and I actually wrote a poem called The Voices in the Valley right where it's just, it just talks about like how you know great empires rest on tiny grains of sand right and um, it's just that realisation I guess it's, it's similar to the um, Shelley's poem Ozymandias where you just realise that like that there are powerful people who then create empires or civilizations, and it's not always built on this wonderful you know beautiful spirit principle it, it, yeah it's it's a lot there's a lot of peacocking Ooh. and there's a lot of chest beating you know is that what the majority of history has been. It is. <laughs> show your status, show your power. It's a lot of chest beating. A lot of chest beating. Thinking of all of them, the, is it the five, like the pyramids would be one, I'm trying to think of other locations. It was on Cole Pilkington's Idiot Abroad where okay. he travelled yeah. and went to see all these incredible destinations. Um, where was it? Where's in India, the the temple what he built for his dead wife. Oh, that Taj Mahal. Taj, yeah, 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 places like that. Uh, the the wonders of the world. Yeah. Now you've just said that, I've really yeah. <laughs> considered things are built how they've blood. been created. They're built with blood, man. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, I'm like, not going to go traveling like, now. <laughs> right now, you and I have got the technology to be able to put our opinions and our voices into the universe. But hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, you know, who do you think we would have been? Mm. We would have been the folks carrying in bricks, moaning and bitching about, you know, fuck him and his dead wife. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You would have been that guy, yeah. wouldn't it? I would have been that guy carrying that brick. Like, yeah, got to bring what? Mm. Damn, man. Can't he get another girl? You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> and so our opinions and our voices aren't stamped in the sands of time, aren't stamped in history. And, and, and I think the reason why now people get so confused by social media is because you're hearing this plethora, this myriad of these different voices, and you you're almost wanting these sweet, simple tales to cut through it all. Mm. Whereas everyone's just, <laughs> and that's who we are. I must say though, um, some think the pyramids were aliens, so we never know. <laughs> yeah, but I guess that you know. But then some people would say that like that might be a Western thought that. They can't conceive of anything yeah. outside of the West creating yeah. something that they would rather say it came from outer space. So we were little buggers then, basically. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you mentioned then, again, as we, we were sort of alluding to lots in this podcast, is social media and what was happening in Corona times. Yeah. Everyone pent up and that's all we sort of had in front of us. With social media being very new, really, if we look at it, do you have to think about how you use social media? Um, is that a discussion you have a lot with young people? Because I know you do a lot of conversation with young people. And it's kind of how I'm trying to 
have conversations with them now as well on how we see social media, how we use it. I think the difficulty that young people have is that all of their mistakes and all of their interactions and socializations are under the umbrella of social media. If I think about the things that I did as a kid, the playground chat, the, you know, the fights you get into, the clumsy mistakes you made with the opposite sex, right? If I think if that was all out there to be stamped, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then thrown back at me 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, wow, I wouldn't survive. Do you right. know what I mean? I think that like, um, but then every every form of technology has to be embraced in order to create communication and create understanding. So like you grew up with the phone. Imagine if someone said, okay, you can't use the phone. You've got to go back to writing letters, right? Mm. You go write a letter to your friend. <laughs> write a letter to a mate. Exactly. You know, meet me at Saturday and then post it and hope they get it and all that Buy kind a of pigeon. stuff. Exactly. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So you you can't turn back technology yes. in terms of like how um young people socialise. But I think that whoa, like me myself, I just dip in and out of social media. Mm. Like I don't actually treat it I don't treat it as socialising. I do the old, uh, I call it the posting ghost. Yeah. People think I'm on it all the time. And actually, I just promote business, put it up there, and then get out of there. And I think a lot of people then look at that, see it wrongly, like, oh, Mike is on there all the time. Thus, I should be on there all the time to do my business thing. Yeah. It's like, no, no, you're looking at that wrong. That I've really had to build moral compass and govern how I see social media. And I think a lot of young people would benefit from thinking in outside that realm of if I'm going to use it, what's optimal for this? How can I do this without, you know, having my mental health in mind, mm. still being able to promote, say, my piece? It, it, it is new, it's fresh, and we don't need to have it pristine. And But you might be old enough whereby you've already established your friendships. Yes, yeah. But imagine you're 13, 14. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm you know? having those style conversations too at the minute yeah. and so yeah it's, it's fascinating you have to try and get in them shoes again yeah. i've I've already established my friendships in terms yeah. of like the friends i've got like i've got a tight set of friends yeah and um they're not even involved in the arts they're not involved in poetry i don't sit down and talk to them about oh i'm writing this i'm promoting this and whatever i've got my crew right so i love having a friend that not plays devil advocate but you manage to always see another side because there is always another side and i love having those conversations where you bring about another side to the the argument it's great yeah definitely. it's helpful because but i think that people like, come to absolute sometimes just be like this or just do that and you yeah, go but i think um, the, the, the written word like the written word is so powerful because it can be repeated so let's say I send you um, a message on social media, right? Or on WhatsApp or whatever. And let's say you read it the wrong way. And then you go, what the fuck? I can't believe G wrote that to me, right? And you read it again and you read it again and you read it again and you read it again. Now, by the time I've seen you, you might have reread it a hundred times in your head. Mm. So you feel like I've said it to you a hundred times. And it might just be, a spelling mistake or a slip or whatever. It might just be, oh, can't make it today. 
you know what I mean? I'm busy doing better things or some, something really yeah. trivial, right? But because you've read it a hundred times in your head, it feels it's like... An attack. It feels like I'm attacking you. Whereas in conversation, that's why I'm saying that whole, um, you know, campfire chat things, the things yeah. that you do where you can say something and you just said it and it, it's gone. Yes. And it can't ever be repeated. It can't ever be replicated, right? Whereas... And you built a lot of great friendships that way. That's the that's the way in which human beings have built friendships for the last, I don't know, two million years. Yeah. Whereas now we're trying to build friendships based on things whereby everything has to be cemented. Cemented and written with a clarity and not to be taken the wrong way. And that's why people feel that they're under attack to say the right thing, do the right thing, be the right person all the time. And that straitjacket is just, you know, it, it don't fit anybody. Mm. You're creating a perception of yourself, aren't you? You've created another version of you. I suppose what Facebook is, you're creating a profile. And now you're not just who you are in that clumsy nature where it's passing in the wind. Your face has become a book. Oh, have you wrote that down before? No. Mate, I look... yeah. <laughs> talking to a poet I really am <laughs> wow I mean do you sit back and just see because you have kids don't you no do you not mm. okay but you work with a lot yeah do you as you do sit back you were digesting everything that was going off when the, the BLM was happening and the movements and corona with the social media thing that we're talking about where does that sit in your stomach? Do you have more optimism that it can connect people and it can... I, I find this thing quite interesting that, you know, being a poet or having a passion and being able to market that, you've got a print to put on yourself. There's lots of jobs and opportunities coming more than ever. Mm. Or do you see it as more of a negative light on social media? Well, that's, boy, that's, that's a deep question, man. It's a, it's a very, it's yeah. far... It, yeah, it's <laughs> far-reaching. Yeah. I mean, okay, like, in terms of opportunities, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. The fact that you don't even have to leave your house and things occur and that you can put things out there whenever you want to put things out there and you can give um, an expression of yourself, then that's beautiful, right? Um, and... The fact that you connect with people, like I see myself as being sort of like, um, I mean, it's brought this about, which is yeah, lovely. I, yeah, I see myself as being like an energy, and I put a certain energy out there and I attract certain energies towards me, and then from those energies, opportunities emerge. There are some people that will just look at my stuff and just think, Oh, can't be asked of him. Well, boy, it ain't for you, right? And then there are some people that might just think, Oh, can't stand what that guy's doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. I like this. Well, again, it ain't for you, right? But when you start feeling that, like, um, you're, I like say, under this microscope or under this scrutiny to then be a thing all the time. Yeah. That's exhausting. I can't do that. I like, now, that's that why quote. I've never, you know, sorry to interrupt, but no, that's why fine. I've never really... um. I've never really done the sort of like, you know, I've done podcasts for a little while and then I always make a point of stopping and I say, right. Well, even, thank you for this, man. No, no, with my with my co-host, I, I remember saying like, every time I've done a podcast with a co-host, I've said, look, we're just going to do this for this period of time and then it's going to stop. Yeah. And that's it. Because I view everything as having an ending, right? So 
I don't have this idea of oh this is gonna go on forever and ever and ever and ever. It's like no motherfucker, this shit, <laughs> this we're doing, we're doing X amount of episodes yeah. and then pang, cut, it feels right um, for this moment in time and, and then move on. Uh, but but then there are some people that are born to um, they're born for this media. Mm. They really are born for this media. They can they can be on you know the YouTubes and they can be on the Instas and whatever, and they can just project an idea so beautifully and so succinctly that you just go wow on stage that might not work right if that was like if i saw that in a cinema it might not work if i saw that on television it might not work but within that little realm yeah it works so well and you're doing what you're meant to do uh, but me personally yeah i don't i don't have the dedication for that i like real life i like real life more than i like online mm, I, I agree with you there i think it is that truly getting to know yourself if you can get to a space of i know who i am i know what i'm about my compass and so on then you can go on and find out where you can position yourself but until that until then you find a lot of people that are trying to simulate other people and compare themselves and be someone they're not a lot of the time yeah and that's what social media can be a but case then again of. you know that's like saying if you look at the history of film if i showed you if i showed you all the kung fu movies before Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. What were they like? Some of them will have elements of genius in them. Some of them will be like, this is the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. And then suddenly a Bruce Lee emerges, you know what I mean, where they take all the wonderful elements of Hong Kong cinema, marry it with Hollywood, and marry it with this international spy story. And you go, oh man, this shit's so deep, so amazing, or whatever. You need all these mistakes to then create the thing that then defines a genre. Mm. And um, I don't know. Like, it's like, uh, imagine you're a silent movie star. Silent movie star. And then talking movies come in, you know? And your voice don't work for talking movies. Or you're, you're, you're a black and white movie star. And then color comes in. And then the way in which the makeup looks at you, looks on you in color is different. And then all the work you did for, for black and white movies then means nothing because colours now moved in yeah. and becomes obsolete. So changing technologies and how artists express themselves and the different genres and the different tones and the different criteria and hierarchies, they just upset each other all the time, all <laughs> the time, all the time. You've got people that were huge on MySpace, right? And then bang, gone. People that were YouTube influencers, bang, gone. Mm. People are big on Twitter, and now everyone's leaving Twitter. Do you see what I'm saying? Forever shifting. Yeah, yeah. it's forever shifting. Too malleable for me. I know, and I think that like, um, there's a part of me that actually thinks it's quite beautiful because I think that the old style of media was so rigid and yeah. cemented where unless you make it in Hollywood, unless you make it onto mainstream television or mainstream radio right you have not made it mm. whereas now wow it's like a or you made it onto print right you know you unless you've got like the best-selling book or you you're a, a journalist for an established newspaper but now the establishments are changing mm. and i think there's something actually quite fascinating about that somewhat if you redefine though what made it is for you or making it then that can be quite empowering too because I, as a poet, always had this elusive term of how am I going to make it, make it? And I thought, 
well, what is that? What what does it look like? And then when I, I sat back and I thought, oh, I really bloody love it. I'm getting money in for it that gives me rent, pays my food, feeds the family. I'm making it. I'm, yeah. I made it like that. And I think people's elusive idea of what made it is and what making it is, it, they don't have an under, a blueprint or an understanding of what that can be. And that's where they get lost in the cloud there. Yeah, I think, yeah. Okay, like, if you start doing something, let's say I start doing poetry, and I would, like, see people that I admire doing poetry, right? I would see people do things on stage that I thought, wow, that's amazing, right? Or I'd see people sort of, like, um, command an attention with their poetry, and i go, wow. And I always thought, man, if I could do that, then I've made it, you mm. know? And so then you'll have certain nights where you do that, there's certain nights where you walk in and bang, yeah. you know, you're the main poet. Like I remember being a young poet and oh my God, it's so exciting because there's certain nights where you are that guy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Right. And then, and then it becomes sort of like, okay, how can I then do this to make a living? Yeah. And that brings with it another set of politics. Yeah, sometimes yeah. being that guy isn't enough. I love conversation. Right? Man. And it's heartbreaking. <laughs> That's heartbreaking. Yes. Right? And then the people who you admired, they may not be making it in the same way. So I remember when I got onto radio, people thought that I'd made it, you know? But I always felt like, wow, I've just, you know, I've just turned a corner, turned a left and a right and a left and a right and stumbled onto radio. Yes. It's not it's not from having endless nights of killing it, killing it, killing it, killing it. It's literally just a lucky break here, a lucky break there, and boom, then suddenly you're on you're on radio. And then suddenly, as quick as you become as quick as you emerge on radio, you're off radio, right? Yeah. And then there are some people that um, they'll they'll do something on, like, say, YouTube, and they'll get millions of views, right? And you think, oh, man, man, I wish I could do that, da-da-da-da-da-da. But then you just think, maybe I just ain't got it in me, or maybe it's just the, the, the forces that align to create that level of acclaim mm. aren't aligning for me in that way, but... As you said, you're still doing the thing that you love. Yeah. The thing that you love is managing to sustain you and your family, right? Mm. It's managing to keep the wolves at bay. And I think that as long as you do something that you love, you're always a success. Mm. Always. Yeah. Because the fact is, is that you are allowed this privilege to be able to dip into something that you would do for nothing. Mm. right i write poems for nothing yeah. right i have written poems for nothing i've performed for nothing and i probably will do in the future do you know what i'm saying right because it's something that i'll i'll rock up at an open mic and just say oh yeah put my name down whatever blah 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 and they'll be like what and i'll be like man i'll do it do you know what i'm mm. saying because i actually enjoy the art form of spoken word poetry i love it i love it i love it don't get me wrong you know for companies, then well, I'm charging you. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying, yeah, right? Yeah. Never right said that, right? I've got that mindset because I, you know, you know, price of pasta's going up, right? Mm. But um, I think that as long as you've got the ability to do that, then you're a success. Mm. But when you start trying to say, okay, being a success is getting X amount of views on YouTube, or being a success is selling X amount of copies, or being a success is having this radio show or this television show, or being able to, those are those are successful things yes you know where you've used your art form and it's created a platform which has 
moved you into a space which you may not have perceived before. Mm. But as quickly as those things come into your life is as quickly as they disappear. Yeah. It's quite a hollow feeling then, isn't it? If that's all you've aimed for and then you end up getting it and realising you don't feel any real difference, maybe for a very short period of time you get that buzz, but then when it's either taken away from you or it loses that feeling, you realise, oh, I lost a lot to get to this position on the way. Some people well, can. If, if the thing that gives you esteem is contrived and controlled by somebody else, then your esteem is contrived and controlled by somebody else. Mm. The thing that has to give you esteem, it's self-esteem. It has to come from yourself. It has to. And so once you gain like what I call true self-esteem, where you start to realize, okay, yeah, this is the thing that I do. And I will do it. In some cases, it will bring me great acclaim. In some cases, it will bring me no acclaim. In some cases, it will bring me lots of money. In some cases, it won't bring me any money at all. Once you realize that the thing that you're doing it's is what process. makes you feel good, then you have control over your own self-esteem. Yes. And that way, you're always successful. Yes, I, I absolutely love that. Um, I, I like. Do you know Alan Watts at all? No, he's uh, an old philosopher. Right. But um, <laughs> I've mentioned South Park a few times to you today. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of that, were big Alan Watts fans. Um, it's very Buddhist philosophy. Yeah. But then they did this small video, and I think that's kind of we're conditioned into this way of thinking where we're always looking in the future and prep for the future. You go to kindergarten; it's American, but you go to like this school. And it's prepping you up for this school and yeah. this school, you know, you've got to get the grades and they're always thinking of these grades because it's getting you ready for the big school. And then all the time it's underlying knowledge in the back of your mind that that's for your A-levels to get to yeah. because you're ready for this. And then when you get the job, you've got to hit a quota because you're trying to climb the ranks. I hate that. And then when you're at the very top you don't feel any different because you missed the whole dance all the way along. It's the biggest con in that's the biggest con in life. I can't mm. I can't lie. When I when I realised that from work, oh man. I wish I learned it younger. <laughs> Heartbreaking man. As you said, it's like they're always dangling a carrot. Yeah, yeah, in front yeah, of you, yeah, yeah. And you're just moving along, moving along, moving along. And that's along. the made it yeah. attitude for me. A lot of young artists that I get on this podcast are talking about when I, when I, when I. I'm like don't forget even this now you're talking about the thing you love yeah let's be in that now that moment yeah but then embrace. you can't you know ambition is a good thing yeah because I you, completely you, need, you agree. need to have something to drive you on the cold it's and wintry that gray, days gray area yeah. that we always get talking about yeah so and you I, need that you need that kind of thing to just keep you going balance. and that resilience and that determination and that that drive you need to have that because you won't exist otherwise um but that whole con of like, you know, okay, suffer at school because when you get out of school, you'll 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 benefit from the suffering at school. Okay, fine, right? Okay, suffer in this apprenticeship because when you go through this apprenticeship, you know what I mean, right? You'll you'll get through it. You'll get through it. Okay, okay, okay. Suffer in this job because then you'll get through it, you know. And you go, okay, okay, okay. And then people look back and say, weren't school days the best years of your life? No, motherfucker, yeah, I was yeah. suffering. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I was suffering to get to here now, right? I think once you realize that, man, you just need to wake up in the morning, just enjoy the day sometimes. Mm. Like really, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of chilling. Chilling. I'm a big fan of it. You know? Was that something 
always innate in you, though. Did you? Were you a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember you said in the last podcast you were brought up on reggae and hip hop and reggae was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But that's quite getting just fully free in the moment, isn't it? Yeah, Get lost in I that. Do, I do like. I do like. I don't believe you should look too far back or look too far ahead. Mm. like my, sometimes my memory is really bad because people come to go oh, don't you remember whatever blah 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 and I'll just be like wow I, 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 I can I understand what you're saying but I don't dwell too far. I'm I'm not that sentimental about things mm. and I'm I don't look way 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 in the future like okay in 10 years time I'll do this and in 20 years time I'll do that and in 30 years time I'll do that. for me it's, it is this weird little middle ground of like okay I'm here I'm relatively healthy. I still, I don't look too bad, right? Sure, let's see what life has to offer. I do, I do like that kind of element to I, it. I do, I don't know why my mind always tries to figure stuff out though. It really wants to go, how is that the case though? Because I think that is an anomaly. Maybe just from my experience and the people that I talk to, I really had to develop that way of thinking where, oh, be in the present, chill, enjoy this space as much as possible because I was always thinking of the the past and mistakes I've made and I was always thinking about existential crisis of what's going to happen what what does the future hold and I couldn't enjoy the moment so I think what you had in you is an anomaly in my opinion but then how did you become an artist then what what do you mean by that because yeah. it, like, if you were like constantly um like you, you, you mine the past for your art. Don't get me wrong. I'll do that a lot, right? And I will project ideas of the future for my art. But spending, oh, I get what you said. Yeah. spending too much time. Well, it was it it was poetry that saved me. That that stopped me becoming that person. Yeah. Because I had a vessel and I had a, a container where I could channel that, and that got me into. The, I think the Chinese call it wei, <laughs> but this state of flow and I really understood do you know when you throw a tennis ball for a dog and it doesn't look around at anything else but it's just on that tennis ball mm. that's I found my tennis ball in that moment yeah because I think artists have to get into the, the zone yes and the zone is the, pre is the present I never felt that before because uh, I won't go through all my story at all but I, I lived in um South Africa. Okay, whereabouts? Uh, Pretoria. I was in a, a sanctuary just there, yeah. out the way. Yeah. Beautiful uh, little area. But it was in a place where I escaped, really. Yeah. And I was there for a year. I did all up and down the coast, though. I went to, like, from Johannesburg up and down to Cape. Mm. Um, awesome experience. But while I was there in Pretoria, I was looking after monkeys. Yeah. And I was doing little... Um, check-ins for these monkeys all right and, and you're it, checking in. Yeah, yeah mate you had to give mikey i'm stressed <laughs> out man i'm just checking in with you right yeah, you know what i mean it really was... uh, the banana situation is getting to me well, do you know what this was a bad sanctuary because they didn't do that they had like sweets for the monkeys yeah like the feed of marshmallows and like, biscuits with sugar yes Oh, wow. Dude, okay. I, I I felt very conflicted being there. It was not nice. Yeah. It was basically a woman that I feel had a mental breakdown, loved monkeys, wanted to rescue them, yeah. but slowly was killing them, in okay. essence. They right. did not have good diets. It was really odd. Um, but lots of learning there. Um, but all my life I'd sort of had the same philosophy of what a lot of the kids that we're going to meet tonight have got is mm. I can't do that. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I've just built that up for myself because 
I didn't fit the system. My sister did. She was amazing. She's mm. a human rights solicitor in London at the minute yeah. and killing it. I just didn't fit the box. So then you'd get labelled dyslexic. That made me play up a little bit and I never went to lessons and eventually getting kicked out. So what happened to me was while I was in South Africa and I was doing these observations of the monkeys, I got a phone call from my dad and he basically said, are you all right, mate? I was like, yeah, yeah, how are you, man? And he just said, um, yeah, sorry, man, but your, your mate's just been stabbed mm. and killed in this knife crime incident in Derby. Yeah. And that was the moment. That's where it all came, because I had this book in front of me. I was crying, mm. but I just started writing everything out. I never wrote a thing before, but it was just spilling onto the page. And it was like a really weird superpowers just coming out of me. And... I didn't care about the spelling or the punctuation yeah, yeah, yeah. and nothing. It was just, and I thought, why has no fucker ever shown me this before? Mm. What What is this? And then I started going through every bit of my, my psyche and what was going on. And I was like Dora the Explorer with a pen then. I was just walking around writing everything down. So it was poetry and it it came to me in a moment of desperation. And that's what unfolded my story. So, yeah, I was always an existential panicker, never thought I'd fit in anywhere, but finding my pull brought me to the moment yeah, a little so, bit. So that, that allowed you, because I said, I, I'm a big fan of, um, of, of using art or using poetry or some form of expression to um, release the pressure from anxiety of the past or yes. anxiety in the future. And so that's why... When I say that I don't, I, I don't look too far back. Obviously, history buff as I am, I do look far back, right? But um, it's always to do, it's always to just get that pressure valve and go. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Ease it into the moment. Yes. Where your flow meets it. Yes. And then bang. That's but, it. Oh, mate. But um, I I don't spend a lot of time sitting, you know revisiting some shit that happened in 1993 or whatever man so you know I mean? well any young person listening to this yeah. start writing that's a good way of yeah, uh, get, getting present or even, start if it isn't, even if writing isn't your thing <laughs> yeah right then just like some form of like thing doodling just something which allows that pressure mm. to be released because there's a reason why people um doodling's a good one i used to love do you know when you write a word or something but then I started doing shapes within the word and well, they stuff. start coloring yeah. the D's and the B's. Yeah, different kind of like yeah, shapes yeah, yeah. and stuff, but I like doodling. Yeah, there's there's something very um natural about little fidgets. Yes. Um doing things with your hands or even the way in which people speak where you have like a like I've got a stutter and um the the, the stutter is is because there's the thing that my soul wants to say but the English language is too constricting for me to say it. So my soul wants to say something, but I then have to use my brain to find the right word in English to then go, oh, okay, now I'll say this. Mate, and I've so been the really struggling with that, that recently. Is that moment. And so sometimes language might not be the thing. Sometimes it might be a case of like, you know, you, you have five kids, one kid can write amazingly, and then another kid might, you know, you just give them a lump of clay and they start turning it into something. And the realisation that, like, whatever art you produce is always going to be the best art in the world. Mm. Because it's from you. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Anything you create has to be, it's going to be more special to you <laughs> than it's going to be to anybody else. Mm. So trying to compare it with other pieces of art that you might think are better or more established or have more provenance and whatever, that's just, that's your own thinking yes. getting in the way because the thing that allowed you to create that piece of art was so natural and so involved and it's the culmination of all your experiences, your mm. emotions, your joys, your pains, all these types of things go into that dumb little doodle, yeah. right? Or go into that dumb little lump of clay being turned into something really stupid, right? No, stupid is not the right word, but something that's perceived as being basic. Yes. Then once you start realizing, actually, no, this is an expression of me. And I think I attribute the reason we don't dare do that is because we're scared to make mistakes and we seem to be scared to make mistakes because even that little slip there of stupid yeah i suppose in education it's very quickly whipped out of us in you, the the beauty is making mistakes and the beauty is just putting stuff onto the page i um do a little exercise i go to schools with um where we've got a blank piece of paper and i get them to close their eyes and draw a picture of their face and honestly, if you go to a particularly a primary school, you go around and no one's doing anything. Mm. I'm not giving them loads of rules or anything. I say, you close your eyes, you draw your face. And then I, op I get them to open it and some have a laugh and some have done it, but the majority haven't. And I go, why didn't you do anything? And they say, I didn't want to get it wrong. Yeah. You go, dude, yeah. <laughs> there was no rules within this. So it is weird that especially at primary school, we've already got that ingrained in us from somewhere of being wrong. Yeah. Sorry to take forces. it there. No, no, it's market forces, <laughs> isn't it? Because obviously everyone is trying to, um, you know, society is set up to try to capitalize on anything. So it's a case of like, okay, right, you three guys have a race, you know, and then the person that wins the race, then the athletics coach is going, you know what, you should think about that. And the other two that haven't won the race, they then get ignored. But the fact is that they were running the race, their heart was pumping, the blood was rushing, their brain was in that delirium, the endorphins were going and whatever. Who cares whether you win or you don't win? The fact is that you ran in a race, right? But because market forces <laughs> dictate that any form of, of, of talent or any form of excellence, perceived excellence, we can then attach a financial component to it. It then means that we then start separating ah. and saying, okay, push these guys forward. You guys forget about it. Don't even bother. Yeah. You know, find, find your lane. Yeah, exactly. Find your lane. Cause trust me, running ain't it. M1. Or poetry ain't it. Or drawing ain't it. Mm. And I think that's, that, that takes away the, um, the beauty of just running in a field. Or just scribbling on a page or the, you know the the beauty that a baby has do you know what i'm saying where it's Innocence just like it's and just, curiosity yeah exactly it's just doing it for the sake of doing it because it, it is what it is which is a celebration of life so the baby thing's quite interesting and seeing parents and how they manifest their sort of feelings and compasses onto them because we do um here Monday, yeah. Thursday, Sunday, if you want to come, muck out mornings, yeah. <laughs> but uh, naught to four, and it's yeah. parents and babies and toddlers, but it, it is just mucky play, so we put yeah. pallets out, and then my partner's really creative and awesome, and loads of weird stuff out, Yeah. but you see the kids just running at it, 
as they would with their purity and innocence and just go in. And the parents that you see just embrace it and let them go. Oh, that's good. But the other ones, where you go, no, oi, no, right. no, you don't touch that. And Do you he's get like, any competitive parents? It's a weird world, man. It's such a weird world. <laughs> I, 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 this is the most learning I've ever, yeah. ever done in my life because my patience yeah. is really coming to the forefront with people. Yeah. Um, Competitive parents are something telling you else, man. how to do it and yeah. where you're doing it wrong. And like, I used to do a lot of work for... I won't actually mention the football clubs. Okay, yeah. Very high-level football clubs. I used to do a lot of work for them. And um, so you'd have these sort of parents that, um, you know, they're hoping that their kids will one day become, you know, Premier League stars, right? And wow, wow. Like, you know, you've got, you got folks that their dreams is for their son to become this star. And they are harassing the coaches. They're harassing... Well, I was a referee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're harassing everybody. And I'm talking like ages six, seven years old. Because these folk, you know, these like academies, they bring them in really, really young. Mm. Uh, That's what I'm saying in terms of spotting talent. And in terms of like, this is what is deemed to be making it. And this is what is deemed to be not making it. And then like, say during lockdown, they were giving them, you know, exercises to do online. And the parents had to film the kid doing the exercise and then show it to the coach that the kid has done the exercise, right? And like, yeah. But again, you know, commercial forces, once you bring that commercial, into... I love that you said that. Yeah, yeah, once you bring that into any form of endeavour... Cutthroat, it, isn't it? Yeah, it creates a cutthroat. And wow, then parents will... They'll poison each other's tea if they mm. had to, man. They Mate, really, honestly, really yeah. <laughs> remember uh, <laughs> footballing. Uh, when I tried refereeing, I was in the FA. Mm. Uh, went and did the adult games. Absolute piece of piss. You yeah. turn up at the banter. You get called a few names, but they let it go. Yeah. Under eights. Mate, first of all, the kids are just trying to have a lovely time. But the dads on the sidelines, and one time, because I, I was doing my boxing back then, yeah. but I got kicked out of FA and as well, I'm refereeing, because um, I'd, I'd ran the game on, my, my granddad, bless him, yeah. loved football, and my dad was like semi-pro footballer, so it's running our family, but we had a really old stopwatch. Yeah. So I was on the pitch running around and I didn't realise halfway through, probably because of the movement, the stopwatch had broke. Okay. So I, I was looking down and there wasn't movement in it and I didn't have an extra watch that you're supposed to have. Yeah. So I must have ran on the first half when they're supposed to be 30 minutes for the kids. Yeah. I thought probably like 50, first half. Yeah. So then the next half, they wanted the game to be 50 minutes again for all these young kids because... They scored this amount in this time, so they need the same opportunity to score this amount in this time. Yeah. It's all weird. Anyway, something happened. I think it was a penalty decision or whatever, and a dad just pegged it on the pitch after me uh, because he was. I kept on just fueling him up, fueling him yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And my instinct, it was in my boxing nature, and I just 
bam, bam oh, on the nose straight oh, away. And then, yeah, and then everyone, <laughs> it turned into a like semi riot. And then I had to run, and my dad was waiting. And he, honestly, it was like pitchforks coming for me. Yeah. But he was like, What have you done? I was like, Just go. <laughs> I promise. That sounds like a, a film. Yeah. But it was so funny, I've, I've like, seen it in many, Looking back at it, many occurrences. Man. Like, <laughs> Under rates. It's because I guess the, the pressure is so hard, and the desire for parents to. Um, you know, for their children to do better than them. Yeah. You know, and to... Um, I didn't make it. Being able to survive in this world, right? And knowing how harsh this world is and unforgiving of mistakes. Mm. And so I think that, that that filters down into the education system and it filters down into, again, in terms of, like, say, just general conversations and whatever, whereby people have got to understand that, you know, you, if you don't make mistakes in life, then you you haven't learned anything you learn more from your failures and you learn more from your setbacks than you do from the successes mm. because the successes just make you just carry on doing the same feel, thing feel feel good yeah exactly and um yeah it's it's, it's, it's a it's a tough one I same with write, writing a poem for me yeah. i re- it's in the pain is where I really thrive and I'm yeah. writing my best kind of stuff when I'm trying to write from, and this is just me, yeah. but the happy moments that I've shared and the, right. I, I just enjoy them. They just are what they are. Whereas in the pain, I can seem to reach a little bit further for some reason. Is it? Nah, I, 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 I know what you mean. Mm. But I think I made a conscious effort to stop doing that th- because then I, I didn't want to be one of those artists that goes around seeking pain. Yeah, yes, well, I've had that discussion recently. Pain so they can say, "Oh, this will make a great poem." Yeah, like I, I know a guy that went through a very traumatic situation, like like harrowing, right? And um, I remember he he turned it into like a like a bit of a one man show, you know. And I remember seeing him so excited that he'd gone through this thing that he could then turn it into a show. So it does because become trauma porn addic- then, really. Yeah, he's addicted <laughs> to the applause. And I remember just thinking that at one point, the applause is going to stop. Yeah. And you're going to be left with that. And I thought, I can't walk in those you shoes. You and your pain. Yeah, some people are good. No, some people, they're built for that. But me, I can't walk in those shoes, mm. you know. And... I love that we've had that discussion because I've had it of recent where people are looking out and do you know what is it the reticular activating system so if you say oh I really want a red car that's all you're going to see when you're driving on the motorway is red car red car because for the brain to filter stuff if it just took everything in it'd be overwhelming so we have this system inside where it spots stuff for us and I think that's very true with pain yeah. If that's what you're looking out for, that's what you're going to bring into your life. Mm. Mm. And I felt, I mean, my writing now, I, I put lo-fi on, go for 10Ks, and all I can seem to write about is my being a dad. Yeah. I just, I look, and that is that's actually, saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Thing. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think that like... The last 10 poems have become that. That you I, need to explore, you, you need to actually explore the good moments. Obviously, I do understand that like when you're in the moment, you have to just let the moment soak over you and saturate every fiber of your being, right? Mm. You can't just say, oh, I'm loving this moment. Let me just write this down, right? Because otherwise, ugh, mother, you, you, your, your whole life is being a journalist. Right? Yes, yeah. But I think that like, 
you really should um, embrace the greater moments in life. That's yeah. That that is really good advice. Because life you? is life. Life's very beautiful. I suppose maybe the reason is when something really a breakup or something. Yeah. Then you have got something to cling to, and it's like, oh, this is here for me now. I've got nothing else left. So here, I've yeah. got my right in, and that's why maybe you go to that. Whereas when I am in the moment and I'm enjoying it, I'm just there, and I'm not thinking of how am I gonna explain this or how am I going to write this down it, do you know what I mean yeah I do it, it is easier to write about the painful stuff because yeah. you're trying to process it and you're trying to get control over the painful stuff and by getting control over something that's traumatic that's occurred in your life you do feel a sense of empowerment mm. but um, like reliving yeah. bad emotions throughout your whole life that's not a life. dark, isn't it? That ain't a Heavy. life, man. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? I actually have... I, I, I like this part of the chat, mate. No, nah, I have more um, admiration for the dude that just sits down and just has a little giggle. Yeah, Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like a pleasant thought comes into their mind and they just go, yeah, that was all right. You Let know? me play with you that You know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. And I think that... Because you've got to give the whole range of experiences. You've got to... You've got to allow your poetry or give license to your poetry or whatever your art form is to then entertain all those elements. Otherwise, again, it's, a, it's that whole thing of attracting different energies towards you. Mm. You can become a person whereby people want you to be in a state of anxiety all the time and they celebrate you for being in a state of anxiety all the time yeah. and they financially reward you for being in a state of anxiety all the time. And then you then have to be in this state of anxiety all the time. And so the thing that once empowered you in terms of like, let me write about my anxiety. Let me try and get control of my anxiety. Let me try and put some kind of frame and reference and bring it out. Yeah. That then becomes a thing that you then repeat, Fo and, yeah, repeat focus and repeat point. and repeat and repeat and repeat. And then rude boy, on your gravestone, they just made just put, he was an anxious motherfucker and just lower you in the ground and forget about you. Mm. So maybe why some of my favorite pieces that, I either listen to or write myself. If you look at a graph where you've got negative, positive here, it's forever going into the the both the realms. So that's life, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm try. I do always try and have the upwards motion at the end of a poem for some reason. Well, again, yeah. but again, only you know what shoes yeah. you walk into. You know, only you know the footsteps you've taken. That's it. That, you know, some people have had harrowing experiences in life some yes. people have had terrible traumatic experiences in life which they may never ever get over you this know? sort of chat feeds my soul i like this is it yeah i really enjoyed <laughs> it mate i can i just say i've done 150 of these episodes Jeez. and I, I really mean this we're, we're two hours in seriously two hours i feel like we're starting dude dude <laughs> I, I have never, because I, I always like to just make sure I, I know where we're at and I keep checking in. I've not looked at the time once. Right. It's been, it's been amazing. This has been the most flow podcast I've ever done. I feel kind of a, a little bit of state of emotion now. I just feel real like, thank you for that moment because I've really enjoyed this podcast. Yeah, it's been good, uh, man. The whole journey of it, it was just beautiful. Now we've got kids to teach. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to that book. Gee, like, thank you for that, mate. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, glad for, I'm glad that you enjoyed it, and thanks for having me back. Mate, thank you, my brother. I'll do my part. 
Guys, you've been a part of the Old Farm Bus, Back of the Bus Sessions podcast. I'm going to leave you on this. I always do, and I always will. Just be nice to one another, you beautiful set of buggers. All you got to do. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. See you later.